evening. You're listening to KSQT Perndale 89.5 and 89.7 and K-Squid Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. This is the Hive Poetry Show and I'm the host of this hour, Jennifer Jahan. The Hive Poetry Collective is a group of poets based in Santa Cruz, California, dedicated to creating a local hub or hive for poetry, including live events, readings, and this weekly poetry show that brings you all kinds of poetry by all kinds of people. Today, we are very lucky to have Carla Samoth, Co-Poet Laureate of Altadena, California, with us to talk about her book, full-length book of poems, Secondary Inspection, and to read some poems from the book, as well as some new poems as well. So let me tell you a little bit about Carla. Carla is a writer, teacher, mother, who holds an MFA in creative writing, Latin American, from Queens University of Charlotte, and a bachelor's degree in Latin American studies from University of California, Santa Cruz. Carla is the co-poet laureate of Altadena, as I mentioned, for 2022 through 2024, and a poet laureate fellow with the Academy of American Poets. Her chapbook, What is Left, was published in December 2021 with Dancing Girl Press. Her memoir, One Day on the Gold Line, was reissued by Golden Foothills Press in December 2022 and her full-length poetry collection, Secondary Inspections, is now available by Nymeria Publishing. Carla's writing on blended, unblended, queer, multiracial, and single-parent families appears in a variety of publications. Her work has been selected three times as Notable Essays of the Year in Best American Essays. A Pushcart and Best of the Net nominee a Pasadena Rose Poet, a West Hollywood Pride Poet, and a former Penn teaching artist. Carla has taught creative writing to high school and university students, incarcerated youth, and other diverse communities. Welcome, Carla. Thank you so much, Janefa. Happy to be here. Yes, it's it's really delightful. So would you like to set the tone for this hour with an opening poem? Sure, I'm going to read one of the poems from my collection, my forthcoming collection, Secondary Inspections. I am a woman of almost 62 years old, of no special bravery. Every day I wake up to my wife clutching me tightly, then singing loudly, and the cat, once a teen mama, pounding on the door. Last night's gunshots not yet forgotten. Turn up the sound, I say, that song about waking up and working hard each day, though I am a woman inert, and I decide, until I decide to throw off all the weighted memories, falling down interiors, the magic elastic that holds my unkind body tight to my imagination, until I step out and blow kisses to the hummingbird, frantic, ecstatic, or just doing its job, circling the bird of paradise. Two years older than I was when my son, friends, and family threw that party for me. The trio playing songs I'd once danced to, Baby and Sling, Ojos Negros, Piel Canela, The Carne, The Aguas, Las Flores, Pastel de las Tres Leches. My friend Gary showed up, 
only to jump from a parking structure weeks later. He told me it's been a rough year, and I agreed it's been a year, and he said we'll talk, but we never did, not really. He only called me to tell me how proud he was of me, my son, all we've done. And damn him, he didn't wait for that conversation about the obliterating fog, the deep downward slide, the gray-gray as if he were another Seattle child, or whatever said to him, jump, Gary, jump. I am a woman almost 62 who once had moxie, chopped wood, built trails, leaped in front of skinheads who threatened me and my two sisters, a tiny speck lost in a corner, wondering if I'll rise up and blow out to the sky when we finally can open the doors. 62, but still the nail that may not bend, the mango sweet and spicy, chile y limon that bring your mouth alive, the lips that remember the softest kisses billowing across continents, only to discover they were once here, right beside me, the skater leaping, flying, shimmying a fountain of joy. And since I'm not gliding, my son is, sliding through Venice Beach and home again to me. I am in the arms that held him, milky sweet sweat that opened up skyward to the honeyed moon and bright, bright stars. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for that reading. It's so buoyant and really celebrates so much of your experience. I notice how you work in, com you're very conversational with your reader, but you also work in these other conversations, what's spoken and unspoken in that poem. And your family, your time in Mexico City, I imagine, is, is worked in there. Yeah, um, I'm just curious, when did you write that poem? Did you write it upon turning 62? Or was it a little bit afterwards? Or do you recall at what point you wrote that poem in relation to that age? I was almost 62. I was just about 62. And I'm about to turn 65 now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Does it still feel as poignant for you and as relevant? A few it years does. later. You know, it yeah. does. Yeah. I guess not that many years have passed. It's it still feels yeah. very relatable to me. D right. A little different time. Um, because I think I have to think about this. I think this was during the pandemic or uh when I wrote it. Um Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. Thank you. And so are we going to see this poem in your book, Secondary Inspections? Yes, it is there. Oh, good. Okay. Well, speaking of which, let's talk about your book. Your book has its title poem, Secondary Inspections. Uh, I have that here in front of me. Would you read that poem? I really enjoy that. Thank you so much. I'd, I'd love to read it. Secondary Inspections. A nose, a foreign look, a memory. They just want to know if you're Jewish, your mom says, of questions about what country you came from. You know that you'll never pass for who you are. Everyone foreign claims your face. City of Angels swelters, everyone here from somewhere else. Still they ask, where were you born? And how do you say, hello? You answer fearing hatred. Fear you came by naturally after strip search and secondary inspections. Not beautiful. Go to New York, you'll be sought out, the statuesque, unapologetically beautiful black Colombian woman says. Here you're Tukan Sam, you're a Jew. 
Angelinos look for an airbrushed effect. Images of themselves, she says. Hatred for your ancestral look. You have only a slight accent. Where are you from? Later, old Armenian men shout out greetings from their balconies, ask questions you can't understand. You only know your strong nose on face too ugly for years, for a girl. And you're hairy. White Angelinos seek their own face. Full lips, not too ethnic, not too angular, no rough edges. Beautiful. Customs guards interrogate, hands grab your body. In Greece, Danish boys ask you for towels, assume you are from Paros. A Jewish journalist writes story, gets tweets. His beheaded caricature rises from desire to make America white again. You are zoo animals watched by hatred. You fear reaction to your ancestral aura. You find hidden outposts of hatred. In the city of angels, everyone came from somewhere else, yet your face looks foreign. Every day you hear, no, where are you really from? No use saying you are second generation, born in America, land of the beautiful. Your mom's answer to that was always, they only want to know if you're Jewish. You go with your son on a field trip. What tribe are you? The Cherokee guide asks. Of course, we both came across the Bering Straits, he says, and doesn't ask, where are you really from? When you answer, shows no hatred. From Russia, Hungary, Palestine, Turkey, you say, and tell him you're Jewish. Watch what hashtag you use, lest it shows up as a cross burned on your Facebook page. Maybe it's true what the Colombiana says. Go to New York. You'd be beautiful there. Here your black son looks like someone they might shoot or run from. You look like someone who might be rounded up, asked, where from? A man lingering outside 7-Eleven looks at you both and asks, Egyptian? Your son mimes the walk like Egyptian dance. Your beautiful son. Later he says, I guess there's more racism than I thought. Hatred spews out of a parking attendant's mouth spits as he yells at a face that looked a lot like my son's. KKK leader posts, of course they're not white, Jews. You're looked upon with suspicion, hatred. They wonder where you're from. Will they look at our faces, hear an unspoken word, and ask? You wonder if you'll be beautiful, safe in New York, Jew and Afro-Jew. Mmm, powerful stuff. So relatable and yet so specific. And I love that about poetry, how it can be both. I, I found that so relatable and yet the specificity of your experience with your son. Um, it just has so many layers to it. And I noticed there was something going on in the form. Was that a Sestina or? Yes, that was a Sestina. The first Sestina I ever wrote, I was in a workshop as part of the um, Vermont College of Fine Arts postgraduate conference with the, the wonderful poet Eduardo Sicoral. And he um, listened to my draft of that poem and said, this is begging to be a Sestina or something like that. Um, and I was, of course, completely intimidated because I'd never written one. I didn't even know what it was exactly. Um, and But nonetheless, <laughs> with his help, I, I was able to, I, I wrote this. Yes. And so can you tell our audience what is how Sistina works? So there are repeated, there are ending words. You'll see, like, in this case, it was Jewish from face, ask, hatred, and beautiful. And they repeat in different orders um, throughout the poem. Um, and so, yeah, you'll see each different stanza, they, they are coming in in a different order, but the, the lines are always ending with one of those words. Great. Yeah, thank you. 
So um, for those who have just joined us this hour, you're listening to KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. This is the Hive Poetry Show, and I'm the host of this hour, Jennifer Jahan. We're here with Carla Samoth, the co-poet laureate of Altadena, California, who just read the title poem from her uh, new volume of full-length, uh, full-length volume of poetry, Secondary Inspections. And I'd like to go ahead and tell you a little bit about this book. Carla's first full-length poetry collection explores the life of the mother with loss and nuance as the book's central figure simultaneously deals with the son's addiction and a mother's dementia and death. These twin trials are approached in the context of a flawed and celebrated humanity that is authentic, rewarding, and difficult. The seasons of grief also look backward on the experience of recurrent miscarriages, shining a light on the vulnerability and potential for loss inherent from the moment motherhood is first contemplated. The exposure of coming undone is very real here. As the poems say, unmoored, unspooled, unpacked, but alongside it, Samoth never turns away from the continued sense of becoming. Located in Los Angeles and beyond, the culture of place and finding home, along with themes of Jewish ancestry, identity, race, and queerness, are also touchstones. Secondary Inspections invites us to take a second look at what we thought we knew and shows us how things are not always what they seem. Identity can be questioned, provoke danger, and leave us impacted by how others see us. The bedrock of a family can be forever shifting, and we too shift along with it. Through powerful narrative and vivid imagery, Samoth's poetry travels, searches, stumbles, and ultimately returns. Even amidst heart-staggering moments, she reveals a rich cultural life that is both within and that is further made possible by deeply being in the places you love with the people you love. That's beautiful, Carla. And I'm so excited to see this book in its full um, robust volume. Where can we get it? Um, yes, it can be, it will be found on um, the Amazon bookshop, um, Barnes and Nobles, hopefully some of your local bookstores, um, but you can order it uh, um, from my website. There's a link to, to pre-order right now. It's coming out in February. And the website is carlasamoth.com. Yes, so Carla, um, C-A-R-L-A, and then Samoth is S-A-M-E-T-H. Yes. yes, And I'll link it to our um, uh, page, hivepoetry.org, where you can find all our previous podcasts uh, archived there. And then Carla's will also be there in the coming week. And I will make sure that the uh, website is linked to the uh, thumbnail description there. And uh, yeah, it looks like a very exciting um, volume for us to uh, be able to peruse in its fullness. So um, let's see. You, you know, I was thinking you mentioned uh, perhaps writing that first poem during the pandemic. And I noticed you had a pandemic poem at June 2020. Would you like to read that one? Yes, thank you. I have a number of um, 
pandemic poems that deal with that particular time period. June 2020, alarm goes off. I clutch my wife, remember to breathe, remember George Floyd, remember Christopher Ballou, 21, assaulted by police up the street in Altadena. Remember the names, the deaths, nonstop. Fear floods in, room congested. A poet wrote me a poem that says, think of your son when you first wake up, and I do, but terror for the risk to his soul, his body, his skin. This mom's heart tumbles, even with my wife opening the curtain, singing me, good morning, good morning. Even with wild parrots and cascading Pasadena bird song, the cat kneading and purring. Even then, I cannot calm when my wife gets up to leave. I see three missed calls last night, probably just son telling me about the latest protest. He made me laugh at the Highland Park March. Mom, look, that white woman, full Black Panther regalia, knee-high black boots, black coveralls and beret, fist raised, standing in front of that MLK mural on the wall of that hipster coffee shop. Would that be her Instagram post? The woman, she looked at me, just said, your life matters. Yes, it does, son. And I imagine telling him this every day, what I've always told him, his life means. But the words sink into fear, get stuck in the throat, legs still glued to the bed, mind gripped by galloping thoughts. I pull the blanket over my head. Wow. <laughs> that is um, just so poignant. And I definitely feel the mother's uh, feelings of just um, anguish and love and, and wanting to fix things and comfort and being the mother of a, of a black child and, and, you know, a black son who's grown and, and in danger really in, in that climate. Do you feel like it's, a lonely place to occupy for you as in that very specific mother um, position, um, taking in all this news and knowing your own son is vulnerable in a very real way. I know that George Floyd and others really called out to their mothers in those final moments. And yes. I can't imagine what that is like for you. And, and can you speak to that at all? You know, I've thought about it probably before my son was born and certainly growing up. And in my memoir, I wrote a piece called Markers as my Black son gets older and the different ways that people treat a young Black son as he gets older and taller, um, sometimes young men who don't even have hair under their arms yet. Um, they, So it's something, it, it, in answer to your question, um, it's definitely a vulnerable place to be. It's also... Um, can be lonely, but it's also can be a connection. Mm -hmm. um, in talking to other mothers, particularly other mothers of, of black sons. Um, and so, you know, it's something that we live with. I mean, as mothers, we all live, even when we first conceive of being mothers, from the moment we think about it, we're vulnerable to the worst kind of loss. Mm -hmm. But it certainly is ramped up when you have a, a son of color. Um, and in a hostile environment, in a hostile yeah. environment, and that that has become even more vivid for us with in the age of video and social media. Yes, yes. 
I'm curious, have you shared that poem with your son or has he responded to it in some way? I have, and I can't remember exactly what he said. Um, he has certainly heard it before. My son has given me permission many times <laughs> to write what I need to write and to write about him. And he doesn't need to see it beforehand, even though I try to get him to look at it before I publish. Um, so yeah, he, he's, he's aware. He, he knows this poem. Um, Once again, you're listening to KSQT Prunedale 89.5 and 89.7 and K Squid Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. This is the Hive Poetry Show and I'm the host of this hour, Jennifer Jahan. You can find the Hive at hivepoetry.org, on Facebook and Twitter, Hive Poetry Collective, and join our email list for newsletter reminders of our events. Our website has a robust archive of all our past recordings as podcasts on Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts. The website also includes our upcoming events. 2024 has an exciting variety of new and beloved returning events, so do check us out. And we're here with Carla Samoth. You've been listening to her read her poems. She's a co-poet laureate of Altadena, California, with a new book coming out. And uh, one of your poems, uh, it's a prose poem that just really stood out to me when I was going through your work, Carla, is We Used to Argue. Uh, can you read that one? Of course. Thank you. We used to argue over hearts. I called my older sister over and over again whenever I ran away. The first time six crossing the street to the little park. But then I couldn't come back because I'd remembered I wasn't allowed to cross the street by myself. I sat on a pile of leaves sniffling, imagining my sister rescuing me. When I was a teenager, she went away to college. I'd telephone her, my complaints a steady pitter-patter or a torrent, depending on the temperature at home. My brother taught me how to avoid recurring nightmares by focusing on the scariest moments before going to sleep. I was terrorized by dreams about Bunny Goo, who was either a tall, bald white man who wanted to take over the world, or a sticky tar that got on the bathtub faucet and caused it to overflow. My younger sister gave me imaginary sleeping pills, told me to just breathe and think about ocean waves and Mount Rainier, ferry boats, and sunsets over Puget Sound. She teaches meditation now. We were so young then, turning to the closet for refuge. My dad was a high school teacher who used to say with liberty and justice for some when forced to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. He was my favorite dance partner, and I felt graceful on the floor with him at weddings and bar mitzvahs. My mom went out for Shirley Chisholm. She worked, went to school, and took care of the four of us, plus my dad. Later, with almost all speech robbed by dementia, she found the words, God, that man is repulsive when pre-2016 Trump was on television. I miss my mom and dad, even the fights and the television blaring news, my dad's temper, his humor, his kindness. Our stuffed animals, large, wise, and plush, sat sentry while we ran amok. Eat a thigh instead. Dark meat is juicier. We used to argue over the hearts and gizzards. Now no one wants those parts. Mm. Now no one wants those parts. We used to argue over hearts. I, I just love that closing sentiment. 
Yes. Um, you know, this is so powerful as memoir. I mean, you're, you're, you're really capturing so much of your family and the progression of time and how it changed your family in general and your relationships. And I feel like this poem captures a life, right? From that six-year-old running away and all your relationships. I love that your sister Zoe is in this poem because I know her and it just so sounds like her. <laughs> yeah, she's very true to, to the Zoe I know. So I'm curious because I know that you published a memoir before this book came out. To what extent did you draw the same kinds of recollections from your memoir for this poem? Is there any kind of double dipping or was this uh, material that didn't really make it into your memoir? I'm curious about that relationship. Yeah, I wouldn't say that all of this made it into my memoir. And, um, you know, poetry is wonderful because you can do just a small slice of it. And also you don't have to, you don't have the same rules that you have in memoir, which is to tell your truest truth, not make stuff up. Um, whereas with poetry, you can make stuff up. So not every one of my poems is pure memoir, that's for sure. Um, you know, you you I love that poetry gives you that leeway to to have some, you know, fiction, persona poems, the whole gamut. Um, I think that some of the chaos um of the family of like childhood was referenced in my memoir. It's it's been a few years now, so have to remember. Um, but I think maybe some sense of that um and of my mom and dad and of my mom's dementia um, was in the memoir for sure. And it's also talked about in this poetry collection. Right. And what was your memoir title again? So one day on the gold them. line, a memoir and essays. Say that again. One day on the gold line, a memoir and essays. Oh, okay. Lovely. Lovely. Yeah. We'll look for that too. Is that on your website as well? It is. I think it's worth actually sharing this from your website. Uh, National Award winner Carla Samoth is the author of two books, One Day on the Gold Line, 2019, a memoir in linked essays, and What is Left, 2021, a chapbook of pandemic-themed poems. Two of her essays were selected as notable essays of the year, one for the best American essays of the year 2019 and another one in 2020. One day on the gold line, one distinguished favorite in the independent press awards in 2021. And this is always a good reminder to share with my students that you can win awards for essays. They're not just for college classrooms or journal publications, but one can even assemble a memoir through essays. That's great to remember. So you have been listening once again to KSQT Prunedale 89.5 and 89.7 and K Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. This is the Hyde Poetry Show, and I'm the host of this hour, Jennifer Jahan. You can find the Hive at hivepoetry.org, on Facebook and Twitter as Hive Poetry Collective, and join our email list for newsletter reminders of our events. Our website has a robust archive of all our past recordings as podcasts on Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts. The website also includes our upcoming events, which include readings every other month at Bookshop Santa Cruz, 
One exciting new event coming up for 2024 is the Hive is collaborating with Cabrillo College to bring in celebration of the Muse back as a live event in Santa Cruz County. The Muse has a long history here and is a beautiful venue for women, women identified non-binary poets to bless the community with their poems, and we are hosting it at Cabrillo College Horticulture Center on April 26th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. So that is just one example of the new events we have in our programming for 2024. So do stay in touch to hear about those. How do you keep in touch? Well, I suggest you go to hivepoetry.org and check out our events there. You can also sign up to be on our email list to receive our quarterly newsletters. And you can sign up at any of our local events to be included on that list. So you can hear about the Muse and other upcoming events. And of course, you can tune into our weekly radio shows on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM, where we try to announce these events when we are on the air at 8 on Sundays. Now back to our programmed guests. Thank you, Carla, for all this beautiful work you've been sharing with us. So personal, so specific, and yet so relatable. And I have another one that really stood out to me. And that's Love Letter to a Burning World. Would you read that to us? Yes. And this is also from that pandemic time period. Love Letter to a Burning World, Southern California, 2020. Praise the dark that covers us with ashes. This morning's tears remind us why we cherish the not burning baby cry of awake, not heartbreak. Mom, I need a hug, please. I just can't seem to do anything right. Raphael, the angel name, should we have birthed a warrior instead, one who could fight the demons? I can't say for sure I'm an addict, but I'm doing too much. He gets up and decides he'd rather smoke, not feeling okay right now. I am twisted up, feel the same way, not okay. No, son, what you are feeling are singed embers after six months of shutdown, broken glass, Murder after murder of men and women the color of your skin. At traffic stops, in the dark, in bed, while jogging, anywhere. Praise the path that brought you here today, a boomerang. Mom, I can't make it. I'm at the car repair. I need to keep looking for someone who can fix this. The drop, like we hear in music. I hear it in his soul. My face is wet as he leaves in a gust. I have to meet my friends at the demonstration. I'll feel better, more purpose. Do you kill a child by holding or letting go? Ashes, ashes as he runs out the door. Doesn't he know this is an emergency, like the blare of fire warning? Pack your bags comes from the evacuation order. Today, his voice searing into my chest. Praise his tears for crying with me. Praise the seat that holds me fast. Praise. There's a real sense of song to me in that poem and lifting up. It made me think too of Ballad of Birmingham, mm. you know, and that, that mother who's prayerful and hopeful and also um, in fear for her child like all of that mm -hmm. yeah 
Yeah, I mean, in Southern California, um, and actually, I think it extended to to Northern California and Oregon, the fires were like in the midst, there was a pandemic, and there were all the murders of Black people um, that continued, like seemingly without any break over that period. So I love that it's a love letter to a burning world. And I hear that echo of praise. Can you talk about it as a love letter and what um, maybe motivated you to frame it that way or drove you to frame it that way as a love letter? Hmm. I think it's the trying, I, I you know, I think it, it, it was the emotion of the time and the trying to figure out what your role is as a mother, you know, when the world seemingly is like literally on fire and everything, everything in the world is, is erupting in a way. And you, and there's a, not a feeling of safety. And as a mother, everything you want is for your child to be safe. Um, and, and, and so you almost like surrender to that. I think it was a kind of surrender to this. This is what, where we're at. This is where my son is at. This is where the world is at. Um, this is where I'm at. And what is my role as a mother? Like, how do I best keep him safe? That whole thing, you know, do you, do you hold on tight? How, what, what protects your son? Do you, yeah. what keeps them safe, you know, as a mother? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And really that sense of love being tied up to hope, you know, the sense that balancing this um, really negative, real negativity with love and hope that the world will hold him, right? Hope that the world can be kinder, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, because you're always struggling as your child gets older. You're always trying to figure out those points, you know, that question of do you kill a child by holding or letting go? Like, how do you help them yeah. grow? And how do you keep them safe? Um, and so and 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 then the hope that you know there is life beyond this world that appears to be burning up mm, and part yeah. of your role as a mother is also to offer that you know to be even when you feel hopeless to to offer that hope to your child and to the world and yes. to the world you know and if you're embracing the despair of the moment to be able to go down and excavate that little glimmer of light and hope Yes. And breath, because it was very hard to breathe, literally, during those times. Yes. Yes, with all the fires and, yeah, literally. And I just, what you just spoke uh, really confirmed for me the sense I had that there was a spiritual core to that poem. And that spirituality um, that's feeding a kind of strength to believing that there is something more, some some hope beyond what's visible to us right now, something bigger than this world that's that's holding it all and holding us all. And so, um, yeah, I just, that was very beautiful. Yeah, and you know, I would be lying if I didn't say that um, at times it's been my son that's passed that hope on to me mm. when I feel the despair and he basically feels like, well, I have to keep believing that things can get better. Yes. That's how he goes on. That's how we go on. Yeah. That's how we go on. 
Lovely. Well, I think um, when you left for Portland would be a great poem to follow that with. Yeah, and and um, time wise, it also follows this. So okay, uh, and and also that dynamic of how you let go and let your your child or your young man go out in the world. Yes. Um, and it's not even a matter of you letting them at a certain point. They're they're doing it. They're not asking for permission. Right. And how do you let go graciously and gracefully, even though your heart's being tugged? I, yes. I let a young man go off to college a year ago and had to navigate that difficulty. So I you get it. it. Yeah, yeah, I get it. <laughs> exactly. When you left for Portland, I do not know what it might feel like when you were ready to go out on your own. I don't mean to the recovery house or that place in Torrance or Koreatown with the boys from the house or your place in Silver Lake where we climbed the stairways and they left out free lemons. You didn't tell me you were going, so I could not say goodbye the way I had planned. Son, I know you'll have adventures, plant seeds. I know you dream of studying in Berlin. Beware of leftover Nazis, new right-wing white supremacists. Jew haters, though we know they treat black people better there than they do here. They don't know you are an Afro-Jew, so you'll hear all the tobacco-stained spit words. Ignore this. Keep taking photos of underpasses like you always have. Throw out old losses. I wish I could. This is how I learned 21 living in Mexico City. Don't trust bad men in places you can't escape after you've drunk too much brandy presidente. It will be too late to run down the mountain. You might end up on the floor, carpet engraving your head, and you'll never forget the tacos al pastor he made you eat before it happened. I could not escape that time. I didn't call my mom, but this is how I learned that when your kid stops calling for a while, it means you have to find him. It might be too late, but I would have to find, save, comfort, rescue, hug, feed you. It wouldn't be throwing it all in one pot Jewish chicken soup. You'd get Filipino chicken soup with bok choy, chayote squash, ginger, pork, jalapeno, what I learned to cook for my ex in Seattle, the one who got away, the one who said, if we had stayed together, we'd have had a bunch of children. What I wanted was to go with you when you set out in your new old SUV up the coast towards my birthplace. You called halfway there and said, mom, I don't tell anyone where I go now. Bravado, son. I knew you had, I know you had to push away. What felt like a light shove to you scared the shit out of me because the call dropped when you were driving. I imagined car crashes, the unidentified body of the sweetest boy that ever lived, the one with the long lashes my sister said I curled. So you are fine. You're reading Tanahisi Coates, the one I gave you last week. You told me Portland is the whitest city, but I found a black barber from Arkansas. He said the people are kind here, only harassed him four or five times over the years. Still, you'll probably head to New Orleans when productions open again. You'll find the work with black costume designers in a black city. And you'll make money. Buy a house with three or four bedrooms. One for me. I dream of grandchildren. Dream of you being small in my arms again. Dream of warm, milky breath. What I want sometimes is to go back. What I wish for you is to go forward. That is very powerful. And I notice how you use this experience of having your son's abrupt departure 
hit you really brings up your memories of yourself at 21. And that memory in, in Mexico, did that, did you think when you started the poem that you were going to bring in those personal experiences? Or how, how did you interweave that experience of two time frames, your, your son leaving and then your own memories of being that young person? Yeah, I think it just happened organically and the times were so different because now we have cell phones and, you know, email and texting and um, there's this expectation, you know, there's a much, I there's probably a lot that has gone on with my son that I don't know about, but of course, I think I know we're very close and, and you know, I, I feel like there's a lot more I know about what's going on with him than maybe my parents knew about me, especially when I left the country for a couple of years. Um, there yes. was a lot yes. more distance um, and communication was different. It tended to be by letter because phone calls were very expensive. Right. So I think I was both thinking about it from the standpoint as a mother and as my former young self, as someone who wanted my independence and left home. And yet at the same time was very vulnerable and probably really needed my parents at one point. Yes, which um, accentuates and punctuates the fear that you have perhaps projecting onto your son in terms of the things that can happen to him and the warnings we want to give, knowing that what is going to be dangerous for them is going to be a completely different world in some ways that we can't anticipate. Yeah. 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 And just the memories of some of the really vulnerable, dangerous things that I've, you know, situations I found myself in that, you know, probably much of which my parents weren't aware of and like right. dreading that happening to my young son. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Very, again, relatable to, um, our, our fears as mothers, as our, as our kids grow and, and go out into a world that we ourselves have had to navigate and, and um, mm -hmm. be harmed by, right, or, or, or struggle through and, and knowing our children will, will have their own struggles that they may not share with us. Um, I know I went through that with my son when he went to college in L.A., so yes, I, yeah. I it's related to that. We have to let them go like, right. in the world. And yeah, I, I remember at one point, now my son has started opening up to me and I'm learning what some of he went through and I'm learning that I wasn't there when he was going through the worst of it. Mm -hmm. And I remember him saying, but mom, you're the last person I would want to know this stuff. Mm -hmm. And thinking <clears throat> that's so sad. And yet I kind of get it where mm -hmm. we want sometimes to hide our vulnerability from our mothers because we want them to know we're okay. That somehow our mothers knowing we're okay keeps us okay. That there's there's this desire to shield our mothers from knowing some of the stuff we go through. Right. And particularly as our as our sons are you know, as they get older, they their roles are changing and they are looking at us wanting, as you said, wanting to protect and shield us um, from their mm -hmm. pain. You know, and sometimes there's a component of shame, you know, of yes. for what has happened to them or what they're going through and, and, you know, wanting to protect us from our own reactions. To, uh, yes, yes, very much so. Yes. Um, and speaking of family poems, I was thinking if you were willing to read my wife, I'll let you give the whole title that that's a really powerful poem about your dealing again with um, changes to your family. Great. Okay. I'd, I'd, I'd love to read this poem. My wife who became my husband, 
He has begun to sound more mannish, as if we were in an old-time movie. Maybe My Fair Lady. He's as grumpy as Professor Higgins. I'm not saying he wasn't a curmudgeon before, but the first days after his top surgery, it was as if he'd awoken in his real body, this new he and my husband, and I was moved by his happiness, as if he'd finally landed on the right planet. But then I suppose the anesthesia and pain pills wore off, and there was a downward movement, as if the plane went into a tailspin. He says he has no regrets, but perhaps some resentment that he couldn't have been born into the right body the first time around. After that, I couldn't seem to locate the euphoria, the sweetness of those early post-surgery days when I could tend to him, and even with his pain, he looked upon it all with wonderment, as if he'd tunneled out the birth canal again, the right gender. This is not what I had in mind when I married that woman. The leap into removing those lovely breasts that were so sexy with the other masculine trappings, her manera de ser, butchy but tender, six-pack fit and tough yet vulnerable, hair tied back, neatly pinned to the top, military style. The first time I saw her after we'd met, she was waiting for me, leaning against a building at California Plaza, La Santa Cecilia playing in the background. We've both gained weight since we married in 2016. Rocky Road and streaming television are sometimes what holds us together. He's got angry scars on his chest, and the tone of his voice often matches with raw irritation. I am always asking too much because he's working full-time, in school full-time, taking two courses at another university, and getting shots of testosterone. But I'm a long hauler. My third marriage, I no longer resort to fight or flight as the only options. I remember the photo the documentary photographer took of Steel Her the night before surgery. The light was just so duskish, and she lay back, arm behind her head, shirt off those sexy blue shorts that matched our Mexican blue bedroom wall, her blue, blue eyes. A badass look, breasts falling just so and still there. Tough, languid even, but sensual. It has been almost a year now. Let me just say that he is happy with this new adolescence, this coming of age. When puberty first hit him as a girl, he offered to give the breasts away to those who complained of having none. He gleefully shaves the facial hair that begins to crop up. His acne a welcome sign that change is happening. I see the he appearing every day begin to see that mixture of shadow and light again. This is who I always was, he tells me, as he emerges from the chrysalis. He says he wants to be the right kind of man. Think tender. Think learning to listen, to not run from the feelings. Think social justice fighter. Nonviolent. My longing for something different, a woman, is eclipsed by my love for this person that dared to make this change at 45 to be the man he always believed he was. How tender. That is so beautiful. And I love how you capture how the transition was for you, that there, there was a transition that you have gone through as a result of all of this. And, you know, I know it is a very sensitive and very personal topic, but can you say anything about how this has been for you or perhaps how the poem touches on the experience? 
Well, I mean, it's definitely an adventure, a transition. I think in the beginning when I felt a lot of resistance, there was a tiny part of me that thought, okay, hold on, strap in. This is going to be an adventure. And I would say at this point, my identity and my outlook is framed by who I am as Jewish queer woman, the wife of a trans man, the mother of a black son. Um, as far as um, how I feel at this point about my husband's transition, it it's it's a work in progress. This is something, this is who he is and he is happy with this. And he's still my person, even though at times I really miss being with a woman and I'm able to talk to him about that, um, which, which is good. So I, I mean, I guess we're, a, we're an evolving, um, we're evolving together through this. That's wonderful. And I mean, all long-term, long haulers, as you say, <clears throat> have to evolve, like the relationship does have to evolve and grow. And yours is doing so in these more physically dramatical, dramatic ways. But how beautiful that you can have these conversations and evolve together and and go through this in a very open way with each other. And the line, it, I just loved it again, hearing it again, where you talk about how you love this person that he's becoming and ultimately that's what matters is his happiness and you seeing that happiness and being very clear on your love and and commitment to him um the way that comes out towards the end of the poem is just absolutely inspiring and beautiful yeah thank you very much yeah and it's an experience that I think is happening more and more. More and more couples are kind of coming into new gender identities after having been together for many years. And it's a very singular experience. And having poems that can touch on that is such a gift. So I hope many readers who need that poem will, will find it. Yeah, yeah. It, and it's complicated. I mean, I think it's an important conversation, you know, in, initially, I mean, now I'm just, I'm a queer woman, um, but it, it definitely was challenging in terms of my own identity. Um, when he went in for surgery, they, I don't remember, I went, we, we went with a close friend and her memory is that they were possibly still referring to him as her. But when they called me to say he was out of his surgery, they said, your husband is in recovery. And I just wasn't quite ready for it. I mean, part of being able to say my wife has to do a lot with history and the fact that as queer people, we weren't allowed to marry each other for a long time. So I still struggle with that, but it, I'm, I'm getting closer. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, to right. being able to say my husband. Yes. And, and, yes. I, and, I, and he, like my son, has allowed me to write about, he, he told me to write about this experience and encouraged me and He's very familiar with this poem. Well, that's a gift too. That's wonderful that you can have that um, ability to be transparent and, and have that catharsis yourself. That's great. So back to your, um, another family poem. I'm thinking of Sachet. Yeah, around the time that my, right around the time that my partner was, you see, I'm still stumble over husband. My partner was getting ready to do top surgery he he told me that he read that the the type of dog that i always 
that I always wanted a St. Bernard, but never thought I would. We have a very small house, but that was my astrological match. (laughs) (laughs) And so we adopted a St. Bernard um, and that was kind of, you know, in a way, my consolation prize for lost the breast, but <laughs> got the St. Bernard. So what's yeah. your sign just so that our listeners who share it may know that they need a St. Bernard? Oh yeah. Pisces. Okay. Yeah. yeah. My daughter's a Pisces. So that's good for me to know. <laughs> yeah. And, and an older St. Bernard works okay in a, in a smaller space. So oh, you don't have a know. huge house. So you can still do it. Yeah, they're beautiful dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sachet. We do a short walk this time across Belvedere and back in our Northwest Pasadena neighborhood. I want to walk miles, but my hips say otherwise, feeling as if Shakira was here singing, my hips don't lie, only mine are not swinging like hers. I wish Dakota, our St. Bernard, would teach me how to sashay, move her hips so sexy and gracefully, big and beautiful, that girl. She lives for sniffing and finding people, Milo says. I tell my beloved, she found us and we were rescued and we walk on home. Great, great physical descriptions of her. Yeah. Yes. Um, sashay. Yeah. Anything about that poem you want us to know? It's just so delightful. Um, yes, yes, I agree. watch her. You know, I do wish I could sashay like her, it, and and it does go well with um, Shakira's music. Yes, I love <laughs> that you mentioned Shakira, and it's funny because I have a ballet background, and I'm thinking of a sashay, and then um, just like thinking of of your dog. I mean, I <clears throat> I can't see it. But I can, in a way, it's it's really just a delightful choice of dance forms that you took there to describe how um, your dog moves. That was really fun. That was one of the first ones of yours that stood out to me as just a fun, fun poem, just very lovely and loving. So we're almost, we're coming to the end of our hour here. I It just flew by. I've just loved having um, such a variety of poems and so much of them that just show the love you have for your family and the tenderness you have and the the spiritual growth and evolution you've experienced in the ways that you've both loved and learned to let go of of certain family members as they've gone on their own journeys. So that's just been wonderful for us to behold because that is so relatable. I was wondering if you could end with there's nothing gentle about regret. Absolutely. I mean, and this is a journey that I'm still going on. I mean, is there anyone here who struggles with regret? I wonder who's listening to this. You know, you know, and I just want to say, even before you read the poem, that it feels like there's a pressure to say, don't regret. And people who say, oh, I have no regrets. Hmm. And yet it's, (laughs) I, I think there's a dishonesty there because we do experience life in this linear form. And we see in hindsight and of course regret is very human so let's hear it yeah it's definitely something i've struggled with so here we go i hope you find something there that you relate to there is nothing gentle about regret i am a veritable hoarder stocking my cupboards with overflowing boxes of widen eye and if only i had My backyard a swamp, I wade through knee-deep, moldy piles of should-haves. A house, a lover, a pregnancy, a book. 
Vultures swoop in to pick over dismembered decisions. Where is the Sweden lemonade you would have given to a parched friend telling her you did the best you could? This has always been in short supply. You might have wrapped up in the softest quilt you'd toss over your dearest one. Instead, you choose the meanest sledgehammer, the heaviest wire cutter, and pay the toughest matcha outside true value hardware in Altadena. The one with ten eyebrow piercings and ask her to break the lock to your garage where you've stored last decade's regrets. Time to dust them off and mourn the life you could have lived. But this steely-eyed Sabras surprises you. She speaks to you in Ladino and tells you to burn it all down. Drags the softest horsehair blanket from her truck, drapes it over your shame-scarred shoulder, and tells you a bright star glows inside of you that spells Herculean. Your throttled try that turned you upside down and inside out. You did the best you could. Hinene, I am here, she paints on your heart, then kisses you gently goodbye and disappears, a sweet-smelling dust devil. You light a match. Toss it in, lock the garage door, and walk away. There's real passion in the way you read that poem. Feel it still very strongly, it seems. I need to do that. I need to light the match. <laughs> yeah, but you're still in process, are you? Yes. Yes. Well, Carla, it's been so wonderful hearing you read. Now, I want to point out that the poems that you read before this one, uh, my Wife Who Became My Husband and Sachet are not in your new book. No, hopefully right. they'll be in some other collection at some point. Okay, so they <laughs> haven't been published in any they, um, they, other they, they have been published in a literary journal. Oh, they have. Okay. All right, so we could perhaps Google them if we wanted yep. to see them. Yeah, and then maybe your next book as well. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. then this last poem, There's Nothing Gentle About Regret, is in the in the collection. Correct. Yeah. Is the collection separated into different parts or um, sections? There is a part one and part two. And if you ask me what the rationale for that, I might have to really scratch my head and try to remember. So don't ask. <laughs> so maybe you started off with a sense and then past a point it got blurry. That probably is the case. Yes. yes. It was well, well planned to start out with. Right. And then it took a life of its own. Yes. Well, I can't wait to see it. That's wonderful. I will go ahead and post information on our website with the podcast. And it has been so wonderful having you here. Congratulations on this book on Carla's website, available on Amazon and in local bookshops. Hopefully Bookshop Santa Cruz will also pick it up. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I hope um, you just keep writing your truth as you progress on this journey, because it clearly, our journeys become roadmaps for others, and your poems strike me as very much that way. So thank you for sharing so honestly of your experiences and your work, and I hope people have enjoyed this hour as I have. So thank you for being with us, Carla. And thank you, uh, everybody, for listening to the Hive Poetry Show at KSQT Prunedale 89.5 and 89.7 and K-Squid Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm Jennifer Jahan, a member of the Hive Poetry Collective, and I had the pleasure of hosting this hour with Carla Samet. <laughs>